0: We're accustomed to thinking of time as a fourth dimension, though Einstein says space and time are really, when you get right down to it, the same thing. He once famously said, quote, the distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Well, this makes us wonder, will it one day be possible to travel in time the same way we do in space? If so, one can only assume that if time travel exists at some future date, well then there must be some people from our future walking around today in our present. And there have certainly been plenty of claims to that effect. We'll look at a few of those, hopping around the space-time continuum to different cities and countries and different years. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Persistent Persistent Illusion, illusion. Time Time travelers. Travelers. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me A Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to... The Conspiracy Clearinghouse The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Across Across the Track track, blues. Blues. That's a 1941 song by Duke Ellington. It was June 14, 1911, when a train from the Zanetti Company left Rome with 106 people on board, 100 passengers who got a free test-run ride on the new train, and six crews. As it was heading into the mountains of Lombardy in the north, there was a tunnel one kilometer long. The train entered the tunnel, but never emerged. Thinking that perhaps it had broken down in the middle somewhere, railway workers went to go find it, but it was nowhere in the tunnel at all. Police from Rome were dispatched, but they also could find no trace of the locomotive. The next day, two people entered the main railway offices back in Rome, claiming to have been aboard the Zanetti train. Their behavior seemed off, and doctors were called for to examine them, perhaps for signs of mental illness. After a while, the pair calmed down and told their tale. They said as the train had entered the tunnel, everything had seemed off somehow, like things were becoming less real. Then the interior started to fill with a thick white smoke that had no smell, more like a fog, so they jumped off the train, wandering in a daze until they arrived at the railway offices. The tunnel was closed at both ends, and future trains were routed a different way. The train had vanished as had all of the people aboard except for these two. Then a report was found in some archives in 1926, the account of a relative of one of the ill-fated Zanetti passengers. It described how 104 Italian people had been admitted to a hospital in Mexico all on the same day in the year 1845, all of them showing signs of mental derangement. Hospital staff also claimed that one of the passengers had a box for tobacco with the year 1907 printed on it, which caused some confusion since that was 62 years in the future from 1845. Ship records were checked to see if 104 Italians had gone missing back in the middle of the 19th century while crossing the Atlantic, but nothing could be found. Then stories started circulating about people seeing an old-fashioned train go past them with all the window curtains closed, sometimes appearing seemingly out of nowhere. These reports came from all over Italy, but also from Germany, Romania, Russia, and even India. Eyewitnesses all described the same train, which matches the description of the Zanetti. The Zanetti ghost train became rather famous in paranormal circles, and one investigator into the unusual and unknown tracked it down to the city of Poltava in central Ukraine. The train appeared right out of the thin air in front of him and several other witnesses, so he jumped in front of it, and then both he and the train disappeared. No idea what he thought he was going to accomplish, but he was gone along with the ghost train, and he has also never been found. Needless to say, a train that vanishes and reappears in different countries in different years is catnip to some paranormal researchers. Some say they've uncovered writing from medieval monks in Modena who saw a strange vehicle that just has to be this train way back in the 13th century. The story has continued to be embellished, often with the same details, but with small additions. The tale seems to have first circulated in a short story written by Nikolai Cherkashin, who normally writes about Russian maritime disasters, but also had written some fiction about submarines and a few detective stories. Later, he started writing more fictional works that use the this-is-all-based-on-top-secret-but-totally-true-things trope. One short work was called Ghost Train and the Labyrinths of Time, a first-person account of a man who reads about a weird ghost train named the Sanetti in an August 1992 article in the newspaper Glory of Sevastopol. So the whole thing seems to be fiction, but the mockumentary format had confused some people into thinking that it was all somehow a true account or maybe a train somehow got unmoored in space-time and wanders into various locations and eras, doomed to be a rail-bound Mary Celeste. Most time tales don't have vehicular components. They're usually tales of time slips when a person or people accidentally step into or see into another time. Or there are stories from people who claim that they have traveled here to our time from another one. August August in Versailles, Versailles. that's a reference to the 1932 song April in Paris, written by Russian-born American composer Vernon Duke for the Broadway musical Walk a Little Faster, and covered by many, many artists, including a 1955 version by Count Basie, arranged by Wild Bill Davis. British academic Charlotte Moberly went to visit fellow teacher and friend Eleanor Jourdain, who was living in Paris, and they toured around a bit. On August tenth, nineteen 1901, they took a train out to the Palace of Versailles and then took a tour of the structure, but didn't think much of it, actually. They thought, you know, maybe some of the other buildings on the grounds would be more interesting, so they opened up their Badeker guide and set out for the Petit Trianon, a neoclassical chateau built in the 1760s. Walking through the gardens, they saw some signs of how things really just hadn't changed all that much around here. There was a woman shaking out a cloth, an old farmhouse with a really antiquated plow in front of it, and so on. A little further along, they were sailed by a feeling of unease and fatigue, in which everything sort of took on an unreal quality, almost as if they had stepped into a painting. As they got near one of the Follies on the grounds, known as the Temple of Love, they saw a man wearing outdated clothes with small park scars on his face and a, quote, dark, evil complexion. Though he gave them directions to the chateau, they nonetheless felt he was repugnant. A little more along, they saw a woman, also in old-fashioned clothing, but different old-fashioned clothing, sketching while on the grass. Then they saw the chateau and returned to the main palace, had tea at the Hotel de Reservoir, and then went back to Jourdain's apartment in the city. Sometime later, both women got in contact again and compared notes on that odd afternoon and decided that they should each write their own account of their visit to the former home of the Sun King. They then compared their recollections and concluded that they had somehow seen the day August tenth, seventeen 1792, 109 years earlier and just a few years before the French Revolution. They went back to Versailles, but things both of them remembered were not there anymore, such as a kiosk that they passed and a bridge that they'd walked over. After doing a bit more research, they decided the scary, smallpox scarred man had probably been the Comte de Vaudreuil, a friend of Marie Antoinette's, and that the woman they'd seen sketching in the grass had been Marie Antoinette. Because this was the early 20th century, they thought of their experience in terms of a haunting, which was quite a big topic in those days, and so they wrote up what had happened in a book titled An Adventure, published in 1911 under two pseudonyms. Their real names would finally come out in 1931. The book was a big success and sparked many debates and conversations about the validity of their claims, with people coming out for or against this being a supernatural experience. Most serious folks dismissed it as pure fiction, especially once you looked at all the errors and inconsistencies in the account. Subsequent printings of the book would add and change some of the details, adding to the narrative's unreliability. The poet Robert de Montesquieu lived nearby and was known to throw lavish costume parties with people in historical garb, sort of posing and creating tableaus. So, some said. Perhaps the ladies had seen one of those and thought they'd seen ghosts. Montesquieu was known to have smallpox scars himself, so maybe they had even seen him. Others said the two women had entered a folie à deux, or a shared delusion made stronger by a secret lesbian relationship they had, a claim for which there is no proof, though neither woman married, so, (laughs) you know, her, her, her. Most likely, the pair had simply become lost on the vast grounds and then later confabulated, scattered impressions and musings with memories, as so often happens, and then came up with this wild tale. Or maybe the whole thing was, quite simply, a hoax from the start. For many years, this story was held up as proof of ghosts by supernaturalists. Others thought it was an example of what's now called the Stone Tape Theory, which is that places and objects can become impregnated by the energy of events, sort of recorded and then played back, if you will, sometime in the future for people who are sensitive to those energies. Perhaps, some muse, such a thing had happened here at Versailles. Though why a calm day before the tumultuous events of the French Revolution would get captured instead of what was no doubt days of high emotion during the revolution is unclear. Other paranormal folks thought, no, no, this was a classic case of retrocognition cognition, where an object transforms itself into a past version of itself. And time travel fans thought that this was one of the earliest clear accounts of what's known as a time slip, and there have been plenty of similar reported time slips over the years. Another case often held up as proof of time slips is that of Air Marshal Sir Victor Goddard, a decorated war hero and pilot who, in 1935, was flying over the abandoned RAF Diem Air Base in Scotland and was surprised to see that it had been reactivated, and it looked different than it previously had. Then later, in 1939, he went to the base, after World War II had necessitated its reopening, and said that this is exactly what he'd seen that evening four years previously. So he thought he must have seen through time into the future. This greatly excited his mind, and he began to get interested in so-called clairvoyant episodes. This interest only increased when, in 1946, he was at a party in Shanghai when he heard a fellow RAF officer telling friends about a dream he had in which a fellow RAF pilot and three passengers, two men and a woman, were flying from Shanghai, but then the plane iced over and crashed into a pebbled beach near some mountains, killing all aboard. Well, Goddard was supposed to fly to Tokyo that night from Shanghai, his passengers two men and one woman, so this dream interested him. Just like in the dream, his plane iced over and crashed on the island of Sado on a beach near some mountains that was covered in small round pebbles. It was exactly like in the dream except that no one was killed. For time travel folks, this and the ghosts of Versailles are clear proof that time slips happen, sometimes to the past, sometimes to the future. The problem has always been there's never any physical proof. In both of these cases, supposedly sober witnesses recount extraordinary things. Two Oxford-educated academics in the first case and a celebrated RAF officer in the second one. Except that Charlotte Moberly Wood, in 1914, also claimed to have seen the ghost of Roman Emperor Constantine hanging around the Louvre, though no one else saw him. And when Victor Goddard got older, he became interested in late 1960s ideas of spiritualism, talked a lot about UFOs, and wrote a book about ESP. So, you know, there's that. But there are many anecdotal stories as well that get passed around as essentially urban legends and then get written up in some book titled something like The World's Greatest Unexplained Mysteries or whatever, like the following. As As Time time Goes goes by, By A 1931 song by Herman Hupfield, the most famous rendition of which is Dooley Wilson's in the film Casablanca. In 1973, a man known as Mr. Squirrel walked into a stationery shop in the Norfolk seaside resort town of Great Yarmouth to buy some envelopes. It was a bit of an old-fashioned place and the shop clerk was a woman dressed in authentic Edwardian period clothing, which seemed odd, but hey, whatever, I don't know what they get up to here. He bought his envelopes and left. Three weeks later, he went back to the same shop, but it was totally different, very modern with a different woman working behind the counter. Mr. Squirrel asked about the changes, only to be told that the place had looked like this for years and the woman he was talking to was the only assistant on staff, and she did not remember him from three weeks earlier. Sometime after that, Mr. Squirrel learned that the envelopes that he'd bought, which he still had, had stopped being made in 1958." Jeff and Pauline Simpson and their friends Len and Cynthia Grisby, two married couples traveling together, stopped off at a quaint old-fashioned looking hotel in France on their way to Spain in October 1979. Boy, was this place ever a relic of the past. No elevators, no telephones, no metal locks, just wooden ones, no pillows, and not even glass in the windows, only heavy wooden shutters. The men were amused and took pictures of the place because who would believe a hospitality establishment could still operate like this, am I right? At breakfast, drinking the truly terrible coffee, two French policemen wandered in, but dressed in very old-fashioned clothing. They would later find out that these uniforms predated 1905. One of the travelers asked the police for directions to the autoroute, but the police did not know that word. And when it came time to settle up, the bill was only 19 francs for two rooms and four breakfasts. Well, they went on their way and had a holiday. It had been kind of pleasant, however, to leave the trappings of modern life behind, and plus, man, was that place cheap. So two weeks later, as they were coming back through France after their holiday, they decided they'd stay there again. But, try as they might, they could not find it. It seemingly had vanished. Later, when they developed their holiday snaps, all the pictures they'd taken of the hotel were gone. They kept quiet about this for three years, but then started telling friends, and the story spread. In the 1980s, a noted writer looked into it, wondering why, if they really had slipped into the past, the hotel clerk had accepted 1979 money, and no one had noticed that their car and clothes were very modern. No explanations could be found. In 1996, a policeman from the village of Melling named Frank was in Liverpool with his wife Carol. She went to Dylan's Books for a copy of the novel Train Spotting*, and he went up the hill to a music shop to buy a CD he wanted. As he approached the shop, he said things got very quiet. Then an old van that looked like something from the early 1950s almost ran him over because he had somehow wandered into the middle of the road. He glanced back towards Dylan's bookshop, but now there was a sign that said Crips and the display window showed women's handbags and shoes, not books. Looking around to orient himself, Frank saw people dressed in what he thought of as nineteen forties or early nineteen fifties clothing, though he did see one young woman wearing modern clothes heading towards Crips. He followed her in and instantly the interior was once again Dylan's The Bookshop. He exclaimed surprise to the young woman, who also expressed surprise because she thought she was going into a vintage clothing shop. When Frank told his wife about this odd experience, she said she had not noticed anything amiss. She'd been inside the bookshop the whole time, and it was a bookshop. He later looked into it and discovered that what was now Dylan's books had indeed been a clothing shop named Cripps, but had shut down in the early 1970s. (laughs) Two British friends, known as Elise Hill and V. Steffens, for some reason, no first name, just the initial, were touring around Bruges, Belgium, on one of those horse-drawn carriage tours in 1964, and they found themselves in a very old-seeming part of town. They bought a lace handkerchief from some people selling on the side of the road, chatted with locals who were wearing outdated clothing, and then went on their way. But when they returned to the area to buy more handkerchiefs, the area was totally different. A woman named Vera Conway went into a theater in London for a music lesson, got lost in the corridors backstage, and apparently found herself suddenly transported to Regency, England where she spoke to a man wearing breeches and a powdered wig in a lantern-lit room. She left and then later tried to find the door she'd gone through, but the door was no longer there. And on and on and on it goes. There's even a whole 2010 book devoted to supposed time slips called Twitter's Exploration of the Time-Lost Continuum and Travel by American Anita Holmes. Twitter is her term for people who time slip, an acronym described as a jumble of time, warp, and displacement with a pinch of slip thrown in. Holmes is a teacher who has written nature books about insects, birds, and cactuses with Twitterdom her side interest. She wrote a sequel book, Twitters 2, in 2021 because she had come across so many tales. You'll notice the vast majority of these stories come out of the UK, especially when they travel. Are British people just more susceptible to this stuff? Are they just so discombobulated by not being in Britain anymore that they hallucinate? Let's Let's do do the Time time Warp warp again! again. Yes, from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You kind of knew that was going to show up. So far, the time travel tales we've looked at seem to be naturally occurring events, if you will. Yet, when most of us think of time travel, we think of a time machine. And technology is almost always involved in our ideas of time travel. And this has led to some wild real-world claims by various parties over the years. Like the story that came out from the Iranian news agency in 2013, saying that a man named Ali Rezegi had registered a device called the Aryayek Time-Traveling Machine with the local Center for Strategic Inventions, which used an algorithm to predict up to eight years in the future with 98% accuracy, a story the news agency later had to retract because this device had in fact not been registered. Or there's the tale of Mike Madman Markham, who appeared on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM radio show repeatedly talking about a time travel machine he was working on that used magnets, bronze rods, a granite transducer, and quartz granite blocks. In his last interview, late in 1996, he said he was 30 days from completion and intended to test it out on himself. Well, he disappeared the following year. Later in 1997, a friend of Madman Markham called up Art Bell on Coast to Coast AM to tell him he'd come across a story from the 1930s about a man found on a beach in California crushed to death inside of a strange metal tube. And nearby, police found a small device that looked like a mid-1990s mobile phone. There are the famous cases of the Philadelphia Experiment and the Montauk Project, both involving possibly time and interdimensional travel, both of which have been covered in an episode all their own, and interdimensional travel itself was the topic of a previous episode, so no need to go further into that stuff here. But there's much more tech in the time travel canon. While some say they invented it, other people apparently just want to buy it. Starting in 2001, some people started receiving emails asking for quote, an AMD dimensional warp generator module containing the GRC79 induction motor. Or, other emails asked for quote, an Acme 5X24 series time transducing capacitor with built-in temporal displacement. Sometimes the writer, a Bob White, said he was a time traveler stuck there and other times the emails came from a Tim Jones who said he was building a time machine to help other stranded time travelers. One person who got such an email was Dave Hill, a shameless huckster based in Iowa where he had a mail-order business selling pseudo-medicine and dietary supplements to the gullible. Well, these emails promised $5,000 to anyone who could help out, so Dave decided that he could help out. He created an online shop on his Dave's Planet website, offering a number of items that might help out. One of these was an old hard drive motor that Dave had done a little Photoshop magic with the image of, and he built it as a warp generator, and Bob White bought it, so Dave sent it off by UPS. A little later, Bob thanked Dave and asked for more parts. This went on for a while until even Dave started feeling bad taking advantage of somebody who was clearly not well. The emails continued to go out through 2001 and 2002 and into 2003. Another person said, yeah, yeah, I have a dimensional warp generator. So Bob supplied an address in Woburn, Massachusetts, saying that he would teleport the device from there at 3 p.m. on July 28th, 2003. The person who'd responded went there to see who would show up, but nobody did. Some internet sleuths decided to try and find out just what exactly was going on here. Was this some weird sort of email harvesting program? Was it a strange phishing scam to stick viruses on your computer? Was it a government psyops program to see who is or is not gullible? Or a science fiction writer trying out new material? Or maybe it was just a joke. After all, one of the requested devices was supposedly made by a company called Acme, which is fictional and supplies the cartoon character Wile E. Coyote with all of his gear. Well, it turns out the emails all came from 22-year-old Robert Todino Jr., resident of Woburn, Massachusetts. Robbie was mentally unwell. And in an interview he claimed he was being monitored and sending out these emails was the only way he could communicate with people. He said he'd sent more than a hundred million emails in just under two years. If that's true, that's four and a half million a month or one hundred and fifty thousand a day, more than eight thousand an hour, assuming six hours for sleep. So this would seem to be literally the only thing Robbie Todino does. Except, he had a company called RT Marketing which sent out mass spam emailings, offering things like free government grants and detective software. That is, until August 2001 when the Massachusetts Attorney General ordered him to stop and fined him $5,000 in the first anti-spam action ever taken by the state of Massachusetts. It was just three months later that Robbie began his massive quest for time travel technology. In his very earliest emails, he said that he had been poisoned by his father's girlfriend and needed to travel back in time so that he could prevent his life from being stolen. And then the tale had morphed into a much bigger story through subsequent emails. Undeterred by the judgment against him, he started a new company called PK Marketing offering free cash grants and sent out much more spam. Robbie still maintains that he is serious and really, really does want to buy that time travel technology, which he firmly believes is out there somewhere. Let the bells bells ring. ring! a 2004 song by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds on the double album Abattoir Blues and The Liar of Orpheus. In the internet age, there's a lot of supposed proof that time travel is real, as evidenced by old pictures showing people with modern clothing and devices and so on in them. Probably the most famous of these is the time-traveling hipster, a photograph taken at a celebration for the reopening of the South Fork Bridge in the tiny Western Canadian town of Goldbridge about 300 kilometers north of Vancouver. The photo was taken in 1941, and there is a young white guy in the crowd wearing what looks like anachronistic sunglasses and a t-shirt with an image printed on it. And these wouldn't show up until many years later. Some people looked into it, and it turns out the man's sunglasses, though they may look modern to us moderns, were in fact a style that came out in the 1920s. And his t-shirt is actually a sweater with a sports team emblem sewn on it probably the hockey team, the Montreal Maroons. This picture has been debated about as to whether it just has items in it that we think of as modern or aren't, or maybe there's been a little bit of photoshopping done. Of course, the real question is why, if you had access to time travel equipment, you would go visit the scene of a bridge reopening in a town of 40 people. There are also lots of pictures from the past supposedly showing people holding a smartphone. There's one of a guy with such a device in a 1943 picture from Cornwall, a picture shown on various news channels as an odd anomaly and maybe proof of time travel. Actually, the man is just rolling a cigarette. There's a painting done in 1860 by Austrian Ferdinand George Waldmüller titled The Expected One, showing a peasant girl walking down a country path holding something small and rectangular in her hand, which she is looking at, while a suitor crouches ahead on the path holding flowers. But wait, what is that thing in her hand? Is that a smartphone? Well, of course it isn't. It's a small book, probably a prayer book, which even the most cursory zoom-in on reveals. But rumors flew around the internet anyway, saying, no, that's an iPhone. A classic case of people in the modern age thinking anything that shows someone looking down while walking at a small rectangular thing must be looking at a smartphone. In 2010, a video clip showed up on YouTube, a section of bonus material from the DVD for the 1928 Charlie Chaplin film, The Circus. The clip is footage from the premiere in Los Angeles, and a woman can be seen walking past the crowd holding something up next to her ear. She's got a smartphone. Therefore, she must be a time traveler. So said the original uploader, filmmaker George Clark, who makes horror films. Experts say she is actually probably holding a hearing aid device, maybe a rectangular ear trumpet or an Acousticon hearing aid device, which had just started being marketed right around them. Well, if there are time travelers, then there must be viable time machines, right? Two tales of time tech make the rounds in the conspiracy sphere that are worth looking at. Die Glocke, or the bell, was supposedly one of the Nazi Wunderwaffe, or wonder weapons. So says the Polish book Pravda o Wunderwaffe, or The Truth About the Wunderwaffe, by Igor Witowski, published in 2000. Witowski claimed the bell was a device 12 feet high and 9 feet across. It glowed and rotated and was either an anti-gravity device for use in a Nazi flying saucer or a time machine. The machine C created a, quote, vortex compression and, quote, magnetic field separation. It used a radioactive substance codenamed Xerum 525, which was so toxic it killed most of the people on the project. The survivors were liquidated by an SS hit squad and the machine was moved to a hidden base. Vitowski says he got all this detail from a Polish intelligence agent who lent him the transcripts of interviews with Jakub Spolenberg, an SS officer who, after the war, spun a number of fantastical tales of secret projects in an effort to seem useful and so not be executed for his numerous war crimes. He failed and was executed in Poland in 1952. A British journalist and writer of wartime thrillers Nick Cook took up the story of De Glocke two years later for his book The Hunt for Zero Point, which looked at supposed anti-gravity research. He suggested maybe there was something to this whole story and the Americans had it. Then this caught the attention of fringe UFOers who added their own flourishes, that 60 Nazi scientists had died from the radiation from Xerum 525, that it allowed them to look into the past but not travel to the past, that it's buried under a mountain in Poland on a train that's also filled with Nazi gold, or that it was smuggled out of Europe to secret Nazi bases in South America, or maybe Antarctica, or maybe a secret base on the far side of the moon or the Americans got it and it is now stored at Area 51. In 2002, a French Catholic priest wrote a book called The New Mystery of the Vatican that claimed an Italian priest and scientist named Pellegrino Maria Ernetti, a well-known exorcist working out of Venice, had worked with an international team of 12 scientists, including Enrico Fermi and Werner Braun Braun, to invent a machine that allowed looking into the past called the chronovisor the vatican helped fund this project and once it was complete used it to watch key moments from history they saw cicero's speech in the roman senate in 63 bce the founding of the roman empire the destruction of sodom and gomorrah speeches by mussolini and napoleon a 169 bce performance of the play theestes peaked in at a second century ce roman market and of course they watched the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which they also photographed, as well as the Last Supper, and Arnetti took a picture of that as well, which he still had. This actually all came out first in an article way back in May 1972 titled, A Machine That Photographs the Past Has Finally Been Invented. Now, Enrico Ferme died in 1954, so this must have been way before this 1972 article. It was noted at the time that the picture of Jesus dying on the cross that they supposedly took using the chronovisor looked suspiciously like a postcard made in the town of Colovalenza, itself a picture of a wooden statue in a church in Umbria carved by a nun who had seen a vision of the crucifixion. No, no, it's real, said the author, then recanted, saying he made it all up. But then, just before his death in 1994, he again said, no, it was real, and the Vatican had it. Father Francois Brune said that Ernetti had been pressured into recanting, but faced with meeting his maker, finally told the truth. He also said Pope Pius XII had forbade anyone with knowledge of the machine from talking about it, and the Vatican did issue a weird statement in 1988 saying that if anyone used a device matching the description of the chronovisor, they would be immediately excommunicated. (laughs) Well, certainly this is a hoax, needless to say. Ernetti once produced a transcript of the play that they claimed to have seen, but it differed from the one passed down through history, and he even later admitted that he'd forged that document, but everything else he said was true. So, just the fanciful notions of a very smart man taken up and amplified by others. Some people who believe this device today say that actor and director Mel Gibson has access to it, because I guess he's tight with the Pope, and that's how he made his strange, masochistic 2004 tone poem, The Passion of the Christ, so realistic, because he had seen the actual Passion of the Christ using the chronovisor. This is also why he then was sort of blacklisted by Hollywood, because he almost revealed the secret, not because he got drunk and then went on an anti-Semitic rant or anything like that. Ah, the coronavirus is a good story. I mean, to fact, these are all good stories. And sometimes, like the Zanetti ghost train tale, a story that starts as fiction gets taken as fact. But what about those who have been physically present in the present, alive and well, who say that they have come from another time? Traveler Traveler in in Time. time. That's a 1972 song by Uriah Heep. Probably the most famous time traveler case is that of John Titor. On November 2nd, 2000, a post appeared on the Time Travel Institute forum by someone using the handle time travel underscore zero. At first, it was just general time travel stuff, then details as to how a time machine would probably work, and then claims that such a machine had actually been built using, quote, two top-spin dual-positive singularities, a, quote, standard-offset Tipler sinusoid, and, quote, an electron-injection manifold and that this machine had been put into the backseat of a 1966 Chevrolet Corvette convertible. Okay, so far, so low rent back to the future. But then two months later, Time Travel Underscore Zero also started posting on the Art Bell BBS forums, this time identifying the writer as a man named John Titor, a member of the American military based out of Tampa, Florida in the year 20. 20- 36, who was part of a secret government time travel program with the mission to return to the year 1975 and get an IBM 5100 computer, which runs on APL and BASIC, and was needed to debug computers in his year in order to stave off the Unix 2028 problem. This is a real problem with Unix systems in which a time-formatting bug messes up dates and times after 3, 14, and 7 seconds UTC on January 19th. 19, 2028. Even though that date is a Tuesday, the problem is sometimes called the Friday the 13th bug. Teeter says he was chosen for the mission because his grandfather had helped design the IBM 5100. He said that he'd stopped off in the year 2000 in order to pick up some family photos that had been lost in a civil war in America that had happened between 2005 and 2015. He also wanted to spread the word to people in 2000 about the dangers of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, a degenerative brain disorder one can get from eating beef. He also hoped to gather some information on UFOs, which had still not been explained by the year 2036. Well, you can imagine that other forum dwellers engaged with this John Teeter, asking him many questions. He sure did seem to know a lot about the IBM 5100, which made some people think the poster was certainly a computer scientist. And of course, what for him was history really are predictions for us. So, what was coming down the pike? Well, civic unrest would develop over the presidential election in 2005, which, honestly, he should have known the election took place in 2004, but the inauguration would happen in 2005. And this led to a crackdown on civil liberties, which sparked armed conflict and a, quote, Waco-type event every month. And by 2008, the country was in full-fledged civil war. This finally ended in 2015, with the country being split into five separate new countries but then a global conflict broke out world war three fueled by quote border clashes and overpopulation and then one day this went nuclear on a day he called end day where washington dc and jacksonville florida were nuked by russia who was taking advantage of their old foe's confusion the American National Capitals moved to Omaha, Nebraska, for some reason. He also said he'd taken part in the Civil War as part of a shotgun infantry unit in Florida called the Fighting Diamondbacks. But then other times he said that he hid during the conflict. He also said that after 2004, the Olympics would be canceled forever, that all centralized banking was gone. Libertarians rejoice, as were all public and private schools. Education would happen exclusively in the home. He says Seventh-day Adventism had become the dominant form of Christianity, and in 2036, Christians went to church on Saturdays. Also, global warming turned out not to be a thing, and big corporations built micro-singularities, which they use to make Time machines. This was all very titillating back in the year 2000, but here in 2022, we know that none of this came to pass. But Teeter had anticipated this problem, later stating that the Everett Wheeler model of quantum mechanics, also known as the many worlds interpretation, was correct, and he had come from a timeline that had split off from ours. This is why, when you time travel, you cannot go back, for example, and kill your own grandfather, thus preventing you from being born. This is something known as the grandfather paradox, because doing so simply splits off another reality timeline. Very clever, that. However, true believers who think Titor was genuine say that simply his posting about this stuff on the Art Bell BBS forums probably split off multiple timelines and changed events for the one we're all in. Some non-Art Bell folks heard about all this and poked around a little. No one named John Titor could be found, though there was something called the John Titor Foundation founded in September 2003 in Kissimmee, Florida, with only a PO box for an address. The foundation published a book in 2003 titled, John Titor, A Time Traveler's Tale. The IP address used to make the posts was also located in Kissimmee. The Hoax Hunter website found that the name John Titor had been trademarked back in 1998 by a Florida entertainment lawyer named Larry Haber and his brother Richard. Who is a computer scientist. The trademark has since lapsed. John Teeter spent a good deal of 1998 sending faxes to Art Bell, warning him about the impending Y2K that would all but wipe out modern civilization. Then that didn't happen and it seems that John Teeter morphed into a time traveler. In 2018, ARG pioneer Joseph Matheny, who created the online interactive project Ong's Hat, mentioned in that previous episode about interdimensional travelers, said that the entire thing had been a literary experiment along the lines of his own Hat work and that he had done some consulting work for the project. In March 2003, a man named Andrew Carlstein was arrested for SEC violations. He'd made 126 high-risk stock trades, and every one of them had turned out to be successful, turning $800 in seed money into $350 million in record time. Now, this smelled fishy to the authorities once arrested he told authorities in a four hour long interview that he was a time traveler from the year 2256 and that's how he knew which stock to buy he said he would trade them the cure for aids and the location of osama bin laden in exchange for his freedom a quote unidentified benefactor posted his one million dollar bail and then he never turned up for his hearing and also Court and police records relating to him had vanished just as thoroughly as he had this story appeared in the tabloid newspaper weekly world news a publication that many think has always been a form of satire publishing stories about elvis being seen alive a boy who is part bat an alien named pallad who really liked human females in politics and especially fancied condoleezza rice and hillary clinton which caused a fist fight between pallad the alien and a jealous bill clinton after Pollard left Earth, the paper said that Hillary had adopted an alien baby. Things like this. So this is not a story to be taken seriously. But Yahoo News picked it up and reported it as if it were a real story. And then other news services just cannibalized the Yahoo story. And pretty soon, it was being reported by many major news agencies. And then it got into internet forums and chain emails with more and more details and embellishments being added. And pretty soon, boom, a brand new urban legend was born. In 2017, a video appeared on YouTube featuring a young man, probably about 20 years old, with his face blurred out using the name Noah, who claimed to be from the year 2030 and to be 50 years old, but he'd taken certain drugs available in his year to restore his youth. Noah had been on a mission to spread the word about time travel and passed a lie detector test which he did live in another video. He had also gone to his own future, specifically the years 2060 and 2120, and during that last trip, he took video of Las Vegas from the top of a building. The sky was a strange orange, a result of global warming, he said. There were flying cars and super futuristic-looking buildings. Some viewers noted that A, the footage totally looked like current animation technology and B, if he's from our future, then why is he using a current day smartphone to film that future Las Vegas moment? Via video call, and still not revealing his face, Noah came on the Kyle and Jackie O Show, a radio talk show in Sydney, Australia, where he said that he was now stuck in this year, 2017. And he made some predictions, which he said that, as far as he was concerned, were historical facts. He said cable TV would go away and it would all be streaming onto personal devices, that there would be a major war that fell just short of being a world war, that most forms of cancer got cured, India would become a superpower in 2030, that mobile phone technology would become embedded in people's bodies, that Instagram just goes away, that scientists live on Mars and humans are in communication with aliens and that Yolanda Renee King, granddaughter of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., would become president of the United States at the age of 21 after a constitutional amendment is passed to lower the mandatory age. Currently, you have to be at least 35 years old to be president, and she will be 21 in the year 2029. I mean, it's all good stuff, and the acting is really quite good. In 2019, the YouTube channel Noah the Time Traveler, which he would set up, finally revealed Noah's real face, and after that, a confession video by the boy, an actual young man named Mike, who said he really just wanted to be famous, and this Noah character he'd thought up sort of took off, so he ran with it. It's actually a kind of a sad video, because he says he never really fit in anywhere before, but also darkly hints that people are hunting him for the secrets to time travel. He reiterates that he made it all up, and yet... Some people do not believe him. And by the way, he really did beat that lie detector test set up by Apex TV because it was actually not a very good one, he says, and he had watched videos on how to beat a lie detector test. Yet there are people today who say, no, this kid is fake and I'm the real Noah, and another internet urban legend circulates around the web. The topic of time travel is an intriguing one, and in a future episode, we'll look at some serious science behind actual ideas of both multiple universes and traveling through time. In the meantime, hopefully all the stories in this episode will warn you off believing things you see on the internet about supposed proof of time travel, even from people who claim firsthand experience. And since he has shown up in this episode many times and a few times in previous ones, clearly we're one day going to have to do an entire episode about Art Bell and Coast to Coast AM. Or maybe one of those time travelers out there can just send me a copy of that episode from the future, saving me the hassle of researching, writing, recording, and editing it. If you're real time travelers, please do me a solid, man. Thank you for visiting the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.